Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Casey. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get our fix. Welcome new addicts and welcome back returning addicts. This week we are going to be talking about Ricky and Ray and no, this is not a cheap cover band at the local dive bar. They are two angry dudes committing crimes against the people of Virginia. We are sipping and or chugging, I'm not going to disclose which one, a classic white chocolate mocha. And this week we are shouting out Jennifer B, Indy 1969, and Allie O. They have liked, commented, rated, shared, reviewed, or donated. So we want to thank you guys so much. We are so grateful for all the support you guys have been giving us with our podcast. And we love you guys a whole bunch. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or on the World Wide Web at CrimeAddictsPodcast.com. On our website, Addicts, you will find a spot where you can submit case recommendations, find our delicious coffee recipes, and there's also a pretty cool donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper like myself, go ahead and click our Amazon link. It will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. On New Year's Day, 2006, Richmond firefighters were called to a residential inferno. Around 4 o'clock p.m., when the blaze was extinguished, officials found the bodies of musician Brian Harvey, who was 49, his wife, Catherine, who was 39, and their daughters, Stella, who was only 9 years old, and Ruby, who was only 4. Investigators determined that the victims had been bound, stabbed, and beaten with a blunt instrument. Initially, there were no clear signs of a break-in or robbery. Except for the two hammers found near the bodies in the basement, detectives had no forensic evidence as the house was soaked by the fire department when they put out the blaze. This week's episode dives into the tragic slayings of a much-beloved family and the men who did it. Those men not only did this horrible family slaying, but believe it or not, they did even more. Just when you think you've heard the whole story and you think you know it all, there's even more. Follow us addicts as we do a deep dive into the story of an uncle and his nephew totally bound by blood and bad behavior. Our loyal addicts will remember from our last episode that we covered the Briley brothers, right? And if you're new here, it's episode 34 and it's totally worth a listen. Anyways, that corner of the world has clearly suffered its fair share of bad luck. This episode takes place about 15 minutes from the Briley Brothers stomping grounds in Richmond, Virginia. Although they are not the only cases, completely unrelated, and over five decades apart, these cases contribute to this community's history of violence and crime. 
In the early afternoon of January 1st, 2006, the bodies of Catherine, Brian, Stella, and Ruby Harvey were found dead in the basement of their house in the Woodland Heights district of Richmond, Virginia. The family of four had been smashed, stabbed, beaten with a claw hammer, had their throats slit, were bound with electrical cord and duct tape, and had their home set on fire. Catherine Harvey was the co-owner of a popular local toy shop called World of Mirth in Richmond's Carytown district, a wife and mother of two. Her husband, Brian Harvey, was the lead singer-slash-guitarist of a college rock band called House of Freaks. Who were these killers inside their home? They were Ricky Javon Gray and his nephew, Ray Joseph Dandridge, both 28 years old at the time. That seems weird that the uncle and nephew were the same age, but we all know someone with a family dynamic like this, or maybe it's even your own. Either way, one person can't stop having babies while the others are grown and making the family of their own. Yeah, I actually have a friend like this. Um, Her husband's sister, his youngest sister, is nearly the same age as his oldest daughter. So they're really good friends, but technically that's auntie and niece. But they're like damn near the same age. And it's the same situation. Like his dad just kept having babies, even though like his oldest, he had like really young, you know, so now they're having babies essentially at the same time, which does seem weird. But that's just some people's family dynamic. And I can honestly think of a few other friends that I have with family situations like this. So I don't think it's super uncommon. But it is important to point out that Yes, that's not maybe necessarily what society would consider as normal, but that was this family's normal. I feel like that situation happens like so often, though. Um, So it's like interesting, but you're like, oh, yeah, unk, but. But really, like you're in my school, (laughs) (laughs) like my classroom or like (laughs) we're in literally the same stage of life. Like, it's really weird. (laughs) Like my family dynamic is not like that, but I definitely know others that is. Right. It's so funny. It is funny. I kind of on the low wish it was, but because <laughs> you'd have like a built-in best friend. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. A built-in best friend. With no choice. You have to be my friend. <laughs> right. Right. It's not your sibling either. It's your like aunt or <laughs> uncle yeah. or whatever. So <laughs> I love that. I love it. Anyways, continuing on with the story here. Ricky Gray bound Catherine Bryan and Ruby with duct tape while Ray Dandridge searched the house for valuables. Dandridge noticed a woman approaching the house with two girls. He quickly released Catherine's with instructions to make them go away or he would hurt her husband and Ruby. Can you imagine being Catherine and having to make that choice? She had to be so scared, but so far the men hadn't harmed anyone. So she chose to just like do what they said. I can't even imagine being in this woman's shoes. She actually brought her second daughter into the home. And then she encouraged her friend and her daughter to leave, saying that she didn't feel well. Then she went back into the room with the would-be killers and her family. Like, horrible. Yeah, I couldn't even imagine. And we know now that that's obviously a mistake to bring her daughter in. But oh my gosh, I I understand why she made the decision she made, you know, but it's so sad. 
It's tragic. Yeah. I just, I can't even, I can't imagine. Same. So, of course, she and Stella are bound and gagged with the others. The mother of Stella's friend, who had the short exchange with Catherine, later described her as, quote, pale and ashen. Catherine did not indicate to her that there was anything unusually wrong before she left. Shortly after Stella arrived home, Gray cut the throats of all four of the family members and then hit each one of them in the head multiple times with one or both of the hammers found at the scene. The official cause of death for the family was listed that Brian and Catherine died of blunt force trauma to the head, not the slashes or stabbing. Stella died of both smoke inhalation and blunt force trauma to the head, and little Ruby died of stab wounds in her back, one of which punctured her lung. So many feels right now. I can't believe he slit their throat and that's not what they died from. Like, can you even imagine being in this scenario as like the mother and father trying to protect you know, your family and your children and stuff like that and trying to make the right decisions. And then on top of that, like you have to see all of this go down. You can't do anything about it. And oh my gosh, how horrible, how horrible. This is horrific. It's so sad because like not even the children died from the the throat slitting. Oh, I can you imagine being four and having your throat slit and then not dying from that? Like, just suffering like oh my gosh anyone but like the kids alone like oh clearly they're not good at what they do which was kill people they're not good at it right (laughs) and also (laughs) on top of that the victims it shows like how strong they were you know they were willing to fight and do whatever they thought they could do you know like imagine if this went down a different way like imagine if they slit their throats and lit the fire and left but they survived And we're able to, you know, someone was able to break free and save them all. I mean, that's, that would have been a completely different scenario. But how horrific that they just continued to beat these people by whatever means necessary and then lighting their home on fire. And so basically torturing them. I mean, that's basically torture. (laughs) Yeah, that's like the definition of torture. That's just so, oh, it makes your skin crawl. Oh, 100%. I'm not sleeping tonight. But what is the one way, if you had to pick only one way that is the absolute worst way to die, what would it be? Man. (laughs) There's so many bad ways to go. Every way is bad, right? How can you pick one? Top two, top two, top two. I'll tell you my number one. Are you ready? Torture. And then the second one I was going to say is by burning. So, yes, you are correct in that both of those things happened to this poor family. And we, I mean, I don't even know where to begin explaining this, but I'm definitely not sleeping tonight. It's you know horrific. what is just so sad is probably like the worst part about this is that like, could you, I just, I don't even want to say, can you imagine, but like. The look of like complete and total terror on those little girls' faces, and the parents like can see that because they're not dead. Mm. Like, and knowing that you can't do anything to help them, 
Yeah. Like your spouse is one thing, but that's a grown ass adult. You know what I mean? Like fend for yourself. Those poor little children, like. And there's probably got to be a point that you hit as a parent that's like, just fucking kill them. You know what I mean? Like, stop putting them through this. Like, just get the deed done. You're going to do it anyway. Do it. You know what I mean? Like, there's got to, they've got to hit that point where it's like, okay, we're not surviving. Can you put them out of their misery? Right. And then can you imagine the tremendous guilt you feel like thinking that? Oh, well, I can't. They didn't have to live with it. So, (laughs) right. But like in that second, you know what I mean? You're like, just kill them. And then you're like, oh, why did I just think, you know what I mean? Like, I just, I don't know what all the words are and all the synonyms are to horrific, but that's how I'm feeling. Like, just every synonym to horrific. List them all out. Seriously. It's just so Hey, Siri. (laughs) (laughs) So, to continue... Um, Gray and Dandridge poured wine over an art easel in the room and lit it on fire in an apparent attempt to destroy the crime scene. It was difficult to determine all that might have been missing from the home, but the one item that was missing that stood out was Catherine's wedding ring. It was very unique, uh, one of a kind ring that Brian had specially made for her. So, also sad. Yeah, and you know... I hate to say it, but we're nowhere near close to the end of this story. So buckle up, folks. Here we go. Oh, God. (laughs) So only three days after that, on January 6th, the also not a good way to start a new year. You know, you set all your resolutions and all these great things that are going to happen and you don't make it past the first week of the year because idiots like this enter your lives. Oh, okay. I digress. Only three days after that, on January 6th, the police received a call from a woman named Lily Ann Polly, who was concerned about her daughter's friend. This is a 21-year-old Ashley Baskerville. As it turns out, Lily's daughter, Latoya Polly, was friends with Ashley, and both of them were dating Gray and Dandridge. And as a matter of fact, LaToya had convinced her mom to allow the men to stay temporarily in their home, like house guests. Lily later shared that she didn't know why, but she became suspicious that Gray and Dandridge might somehow be involved in the Harvey murders. But she shook it off since she had absolutely no proof. The men were very polite and they were helpful house guests. They were helping to do like small chores and repairs around the house. And they gave them gifts like a TV and some cookies and gifts for Lily's grandson and all these great things. So she just kind of shook off that weird feeling that she had. Later, LaToya admitted to her mother that she overheard Gray and Dandridge and Ashley talking about finding a house to rob LaToya had told them that she wasn't interested in going along, so the three left without her. Much later that evening, the two men came back to the house, and when LaToya asked where Ashley was, they indicated that she had, quote, gone bye-bye. When, so these grown men talk like children, too? my God. So when LaToya repeatedly tried to reach Ashley by phone and was unsuccessful, she became very worried. That's when she told her mother about her concerns and they together called the police when the men were not there. LaToya admitted that before they had left, she had overheard Ashley tell the two men that her stepfather 
who she didn't care for at all, kept money in their house. They came up with a plan to fake Ashley's kidnapping and demand money from her mother, who was 46-year-old Mary Baskerville Tucker, and her stepfather, who was 55-year-old Percy L. Tucker. Percy L. had worked as a forklift driver for many years, and Mary worked for a local dry cleaner and also at a church. It was reported that even though they didn't live in a neighborhood as nice as the Harveys, they had worked hard for what they had and were very proud of their life. Everyone knew them as nice, church-going people. Perciel had house rules that Ashley didn't appreciate, which may have been what led her to want to steal from them. After the call from Lily and Latoya Polly, the police hurried to the Tucker home. This was located about 15 miles from the Harvey home. After no one answered, they stormed into the house. Sadly, all three members of the Baskerville-Tucker family were found dead. Similar to the Harveys, they were gagged and bound with tape. This time, the house was ransacked. Percy L. and Mary had suffocated with layers and layers of duct tape and plastic wrap around their heads, and Percy L. had what appeared to be a sock stuffed down his throat. Once the tape was removed, it also showed they had been slashed across the throat. Ashley also had the duct tape layers on her head, but then also an extra plastic bag was taped over her head. Again, it was initially difficult to know everything that was missing from the house, but specifically missing was the Tucker's 1993 Chevy Blazer. So we're back at the same situation again, where they have their throats slashed, but clearly that didn't do the job because they felt the need to go ahead and suffocate them. Like, can these two idiots do anything right? I mean, I, I'm like disappointed that this didn't go well for the, even for them. You know what I mean? Like if you had slit their throat and it was a quick death and you got what you need and got out of there, I'm less mad than I am if you slit their throat, fail, and then make them suffer and torture before ransacking their house and leaving. Like, did you have to make that so terrible for them as well like their last moments were just the worst moments of their lives where like instead of just like breaking in shooting them and leaving do you know what i mean like that could have been so much smoother it's not better in that like at the end of the day they still died and they still lost their lives but like why did it have to be torture I totally get what you're saying yeah and it's not like it's the first time that they ever slit someone's throat either Right. They've now had uh, practice seven times and failed seven times. Right. It's like that's that's what their end goal is. Like, let's just barely do it so that they don't die. Like, just so we can be extra shitty. And you know what? That's such a personal thing to be that close to somebody, whether they're tied up, bound, gagged, whatever. That's such a personal thing to walk up to someone and with your own two hands, like, grab them and use a knife to slit someone's throat like that's so personal and so it's so gory in comparison to like my example of just walking in and shooting them with a gun you know what I mean you're at a distance you can get your hands dirty except for gunpowder residue and that's that you know what I mean this is so gory and hands-on and personal and it it's crazy to me that this hasn't affected them at all. They're just going to keep going. Right. Like this is victims 
five, six, and seven, and they haven't learned their lesson, haven't done anything different other than the way that they ended up bludgeoning the last victims versus suffocating the next ones. I mean, what were they doing? Like a trial run? I don't understand. Yeah, it's really hard to say what these people. Oh, my gosh. And I mean, investigators didn't know either. I mean, they recognized that they had two homicide scenes. Both were involving torture and that they were only five days and a few miles apart. But they were confused because they were homes that were in completely different neighborhoods. The families didn't even know each other. There was literally no connection, nothing. So two total sets of strangers killed just horrifically. I mean, the investigators were just as confused as you and I are. Not saying something. Um, So Lily and LaToya were extremely important to the speed in which the killers were found. Working with the police, LaToya made a call to Dandridge. He told her that they were going to be gone for a couple weeks, but they would be back soon. And they were headed to Philadelphia. As a short little bunny trail here, Lily asked the police to come go through her home as the men had tried to be, quote, good guests and kept giving her these gifts. Um, They gave her a hostess gift of fresh cookies, and she admitted that they were delicious and so much more. When the police went through the Polly home, they found many items from the two murdered families' homes. The cookies had been taken from the Harvey home where they had just been baked by Catherine and Ruby. Oh my gosh. Okay, so I'm glad somebody got to enjoy those cookies. But this isn't the point of the story. (laughs) That's horrific that they killed these people and brought the baked goods home to Lily Almost as if, like, they made them or that they intentionally sought these cookies out as, like, a thank you to her allowing them staying in their home. But really, it was just a <laughs> cookie crime of opportunity. Stealing cookies because they had the opportunity when they were there and fresh and had just come out of the oven. And, well, the people who baked them definitely were not going to get to enjoy them. Yeah, well, and the other thing that really irks me is they're, like, killing this family, and they're like, mmm, smells delicious, let's go grab these cookies and take them back with us. Oh my gosh, so gross. I don't know if delicious is the right word for smelling, because you now have dead bodies surrounding you, number one, and number two, you decided to light the freaking house on fire. But I'm sure prior to all that, it smelled great. I'm I'm sure. Yeah, it's just uh, so gross. But we're not done yet. <laughs> so back to, back to the hunt. Um, the police took the phone numbers provided by LaToya and quickly researched them, finding that it was a landline. They called the police department in Philadelphia and were put in touch with a detective. The detective listened to their story and said that he would grab his partner and go looking for the Chevy Blazer. After only a couple of hours, a Philadelphia detective called them back and said they indeed found the Blazer at the suspect's address. As you can imagine, 
Um, the green light was given from Virginia to Philadelphia to apprehend the suspects. They assembled the SWAT team and breached the home. They found Dandridge eating breakfast and Gray had heard the police in the house and was found hiding behind a water heater. On January 7th, only the seventh day since the Harveys were murdered in their home and one day since they found Ashley, her mom and stepfather, the killers were arrested. Okay, so in just a side note, the comments during the investigation and the crime scene and the autopsies were things like, I've seen death before, but this is pure evil, and that was pure torture, and I've seen death before, but nothing like this. So basically, the citizens were all scared. They were locking themselves in their homes. They trusted no one. And the fact that the authorities could arrest the killers within a seven-day period was an amazing relief to this community, as I'm sure you can imagine. I think that's a pretty amazing statistic to say that they caught the killers in only a week, but it's just really sad the amount of damage that these two individuals had on a community in that short amount of time. Right, but like, props to LaToya, man. Like, <laughs> who knows how many lives she saved, you know? Yeah, I am thankful for them, and I'm sure that the other members of that community can agree. Yeah, no, for sure. I could only imagine. So anyways, um, approximately one hour after they were arrested, Dandridge confessed to killing the Tuckers and Ashley Bakersville. He did not hold out long under pressure, obviously. Um, <laughs> approximately 11 hours after Dandridge confessed, Gray asked to speak with a detective also. During the confession, he provided a detailed three-page confession. He described using a kitchen knife and a claw hammer to kill the Harvey family. He said, quote, I don't believe sorry is strong enough. None of this was necessary, end quote. He also admitted to being an accomplice in the Tucker Bakersville murders. So the very next day on January 8th, 2006, the police formally identified Ashley Bakersville as a participant in the Harvey murders, the Chesterfield robbery, and the robbery at her own home. This was a combination of the confessions from Dandridge and Gray, as well as eyewitness testimony. Ashley had acted as the lookout in the car while Gray and Dandridge entered the Harvey home, and sadly, when her body was found she was wearing Catherine Harvey's wedding ring. Gray and Dandridge testified that Ashley had also posed as a victim and allowed herself to be tied up as part of the plan to rob her own mother and stepfather. About this, Gray said, quote, things just went wrong and he got tired of the girls, so he just decided to kill her, I guess. Because that's what we do when we get tired of people. Apparently. I mean, I don't, so I can't relate, but I guess, I guess do what you do, you know? Oh, that is not normal behavior? Crazy. <laughs> not normal. Okay, so after Gray and Dandridge were arrested, two prior murders and a near-fatal assault in late 2005 were linked to them. So, where we started didn't actually start their crime spree. This all happened 
in November of 2005. And then obviously we were moving into January of 2006. So less than two months before the murders in Virginia on November 5th, 2005, the badly beaten body of 35 year old Treva Terrell Gray was found in a shallow grave next to Brookside Avenue in Washington, Pennsylvania. Treva was the wife of Ricky Gray. She married Gray approximately six months before that. They had lived in a house owned by her family, and Dandridge had moved in with them following his release from prison on October 26, 2005, after serving more than 10 years for armed robbery. Less than 10 days after he moved in, Treva was killed. I, I cannot believe the amount of destruction one man can influence. This is insane. So, hold up. <laughs> They're 28, right? He's 28? So he got locked Correct. up at 18 and spent 10 years. So no wonder he's acting like a child. He's had no adult interactions or like life outside of prison right and less than 10 days after getting out of prison he convinces his uncle to go ahead and just kill his new wife and leave the state no problem like the influence this man must have i mean he's jesus Right? Like, <laughs> who else has that kind of influence on people? That is insane. Yeah, I don't really get how that works, but, you know. Like, did he walk on water, too? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> how did we get here? Oh, no. Ugh, okay. So, Trevor's parents claimed that they saw marks on Gray's arm the same day that Trevor's body was found. Both Gray and Dandridge were interviewed by the Washington police, but somehow they were not considered suspects at the time. So Trevor's parents see what could potentially be, you know, like claw marks fighting for her life. And they're interviewed by police and somehow get out of that. All right. So Trevor's mother alleges that the police had suggested that Trevor had died of a drug overdose and were lax in investigating her daughter's death. While the police did rule her death suspicious, no homicide investigation was launched. In subsequent confessions, Gray actually admitted to beating his wife, Treva, to death, while Dandridge held her down. After his confession, the Washington police finally launched a homicide investigation. So it took seven more victims having to die an arrest, and a confession before they decide to officially launch the homicide investigation that should have been started two months prior to that. I'm appalled. This is shoddy police work. And I mean, I don't, I'm not the type of person to just jump to that conclusion, but this is bad. This is really bad. I concur. Not, not a gold star here. <laughs> No, no, no. Zero out of five. Actually would not recommend. This is not good. So approximately a week after Treva's death, her parents evicted Dandridge from their property. Uh, 
I don't blame them for that at all. So Dandridge moved in with his father, who also lived in Philadelphia, and Gray went to stay with his maternal grandmother in Virginia. Dandridge left Philadelphia on Christmas Day to join Gray. And we have to remember here that they're related. So this may not be the same grandmother, but it's all in the same family, whether it's by blood or marriage. Okay, before we move on and completely swipe this under the rug, I do want to take the opportunity to say that I realize that we're playing armchair detective here and that we're looking at all of this after the fact and hindsight is 2020, right? I mean, we're not walking a mile in their shoes and this isn't in real time, but isn't it a shame to realize that if the Washington Police Department would have looked more closely and arrested Gray and Dandridge from Trevor's death, none of what followed would have happened. We would not be talking today because there would have been no torture, no fires, no beatings, no stabbings, no suffocation, not seven more victims. There would have been nothing else and no more trauma caused at all had they done their investigation in the proper way from the very beginning. I just want to take a second to talk about that before we move on because this could have been prevented. And I'm not trying to blame the police because they are not the ones that went out and killed those people. So it is ultimately Gray and Dandridge's fault and their fault alone. But it just really fucking sucks that the justice system failed these victims. Yeah, no, I mean, we can sit here and what if all day long, but like, the fact of the matter is, is that they need to learn from this and never obviously let anything like this happen again, because like, that's a lot more people and a lot more horrible, like, the families, friends, like, horrible, lasting, affecting like PTSD, anxiety, like all sorts of things that go on that come like if you live, but you know, these victims, like there's a lot that goes into it. So they need to just do better. Just do better. Yeah. And if they didn't learn from this situation, then I'm even more disappointed than I was before you said that. So yeah, I hope that they learned. I just am really, really disappointed in the way that this went down and wish that it wouldn't have gone down the way that it did and wish that we wouldn't be talking about this right now because I think my blood pressure is high right now. Yeah, I'm getting a freaking headache. Okay. <laughs> oh, I just, my heart hurts. My blood pressure is increasing. I feel hot. I'm, I'm upset. I am upset. These two fucking idiots. Ugh. Okay. Let's let's move on before I have a heart attack. Okay. So the two men were in Virginia less than a week when they struck on their next victim. And on December 31st, 2005, a 26-year-old Ryan Carey was attacked by two men who were later identified as, you guessed it, Gray and Dandridge, Tweedledee and Tweedlefuckin'Dumb, in front of his parents' home in Arlington. So Ryan was beaten extensively and was stabbed in the chest, neck, and arms. The near-fatal assault left him in a coma for two weeks, and he permanently lost the use of his right arm. 
Gray eventually confessed to this attack on Ryan Carey. Horrific. Can you imagine? (laughs) Another one. (laughs) Another one. DJ Khaled voice. This is, I don't, I just am still like, what did they get out of that? What did they get out of that? What was the purpose? And again, they couldn't even fucking succeed. Another failed. Yet another failed attempt. (laughs) I just, oh my gosh. (sighs) Okay. Both Gray and Dandridge were tried and prosecuted in the circuit court of the city of Richmond, Virginia. And I just want to say that compared to some of our other studies, the law and court system in the city of Richmond seemed to move pretty quickly on their case. So, and of course, I'm speaking not about the investigative portion of this. I'm now speaking about the trial portion of it and convicting these assholes. So about a month after they were arrested on February 9th, 2006, Gray was charged with a whole slew of things. Okay, so there were five counts of capital murder for the Harvey killings, one charge for killing more than once in a three-year period, one charge for committing more than one killing in a single act, one charge for killing in commission of a robbery, and two charges for killing a child under 14 years of age. On the same day, Dandridge was charged with three counts of capital murder in the Tucker-Baskerville killings, and a third count was later amended to include him being an accomplice in the Harvey killings. And I just want to remind our addicts that if you recall from the Briley gang, we discussed the topic of the trigger man rule, which basically states that in the state of Virginia, The only person that can be convicted of capital murder and placed on death row is that of somebody who actually committed the act of murder. No accomplices that were present or anybody else that maybe planned or was a getaway car or anything like that, where the example that we gave in last week's episode was California, which has the association clause of that anybody that was involved at all is eligible to receive the death penalty. So in the state of Virginia, that's not the case. So something that I can truly appreciate is that they split up the responsibility of the murders so that each of them were at least eligible for this. And obviously the next step down would be life in prison without the possibility of parole. And we'll get into how that actually turned out. But I just wanted to remind you that with them filing charges against Gray for one family and Dandridge for another, that is the best outcome so that neither of them are ever having the possibility of being released back into the community ever again. So Dandridge initially pled not guilty. He was tried in September of 2006, but prior to closing arguments, he changed his plea to guilty on the three counts of capital murder as part of an agreement to receive a sentence of life in prison without parole. So basically, just to put this in other terms, he uh, saved his ass last minute once all the evidence against him was presented to the jury and he realized, yeah, no way in hell am I not getting convicted of this. So I'm going to go ahead and take a plea deal that they offered me that I initially declined and pled not guilty. So it's a cheater's way out. Fuck this man. 
So next is Gray's trial, which actually went before Dandridge's, but he wasn't sentenced until after. So he also pled not guilty. His defense team sought leniency due to claimed abuse as a child and drug use. They presented evidence of physical and sexual abuse suffered during his childhood and claimed he was using PCP during the acts of murder. In August of 2006, a jury found Gray guilty of all five capital murder charges. This decision was made after only four days of the trial and 30 minutes of jury deliberation. The jury's recommendation was that Gray receive a death penalty for the murders of the children, Stella and Ruby Harvey, and life in prison for the three other murder charges. While there were appeals that we'll explain in a second, on October 23rd, 2006, Gray was sentenced to death. I think my heart finally has a little bit of relief now that we've gotten to the sentencing and conviction part. (laughs) Oh my goodness, I was getting real worked up there. In December 2006, Culpeper County also indicted Gray for the murder of Cheryl Warner, a 37-year-old legal secretary and mother of three. I told you, just when you thought we were done there's more. She was found shot and hanged by an electrical cord in the basement of her house. Her house was on fire and burning in the town of Riva. Gray pleaded not guilty, and on June 4, 2008, the charge was suspended due to contradictory evidence. But honestly, I want to put it past him. So I know we have to, in this country, be biased and innocent until proven guilty and all that, but... I'm convicting him in the Crime Addicts podcast because he deserves it and he's perfectly capable of it. Agreed. Judge and jury rule. <laughs> and it took less than 30 minutes. <laughs> it took me about 30 seconds. So I don't even need any details. Oh, there was another murder? Yeah, he did it. I don't care. <laughs> and what I hate about that is that... uh I don't know what the contradictory evidence was. And like, obviously it wasn't released because, you know, of all the legal aspects of that. But what's sad is that Cheryl Warner's family never got any closure or, you know, anyone to really blame for that. And I think that's really sad. Yeah, no, that's extremely sad. I mean, they, she deserves closure. They deserve pleasure. So it's just unfortunate. The whole situation. I hate it all. Between May 2011 and November 2015, Gray's execution was set and then stayed pending his various appeals, both in Commonwealth and federal courts. In November 2015, a panel of the Fourth Circuit rejected Gray's appeal to that court. On January 19th of 2016, Gray's execution was set for March 16th of 2016, but was stayed again to allow Gray to make his appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Later in 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear Gray's case. The execution was scheduled for January 18th of 2017. His last-ditch effort was a clemency plea to Governor Terry McAlfie, but it was denied. His lawyers filed an emergency appeal with the Supreme Court as the Virginia officials said in advance that they planned to use metazolam and potassium chloride from a compounding pharmacy. 
Virginia would be the first state to use this method according to Gray's attorneys. So, Gray's attorneys had challenged the state's lethal injection plan, saying that even a firing squad would be more humane. But ultimately, it was again denied and he was executed on January 18, 2017 at Greensville Correctional Center at 9.42 p.m. Eastern Standard Time by lethal injection. When asked if he had any last words, he responded, nope. Gray was the second-to-last man executed in Virginia before the state abolished capital punishment. There was also a big party. We just, you know, we don't need to really go into it. And I didn't, you know, just wanted to throw that out there. Um, But anyway, uh, Dandridge is currently incarcerated at the Red Onion State Prison, where he will remain until he dies. Yay. (sighs) Okay. So, so the article that we chose this week covers the quote unquote abuse claims that Ricky Gray's attorneys put forth during his trials and many appeals. It comes to us from Pilot Online from their courts and crime section from December 13, 2016, in an excerpt from the article titled. Lawyers describe childhood abuse as, quote, sexual slavery, as they argue Ricky Gray should be spared death. So here we go. In a statement sent to the Virginia pilot, Gray's lawyers say they will argue that not enough evidence of his history as a victim of sexual abuse and his resulting drug abuse was presented in the sentencing of Gray's 2006 trial. Evidence developed since then provides an understanding of, though not an excuse for, his crimes, attorney Rob Lee and Jonathan Sheldon wrote in their statement. Gray's sister testified briefly about his abuse at the trial, but the extent was never explained, Lee said. Quote, which is very important because it drove Ricky Gray into a drug abuse at a very early age, Lee said. And that connection was never made. The powerful role drugs played in the crime and the link between drugs and the sexual abuse, end quote. As a child, Gray, whose execution is set for January 18th, was unprotected by his family or society that at large from the extreme abuses he suffered, wrote Dr. David Lysak, a psychologist who interviewed him earlier this year. Affidavits by doctors who interviewed him or reviewed his history described a child who was repeatedly raped and abused and who went on to use PCP and other drugs to block out his psychological pain. Quote, he suffers such severe symptoms decades after the vicious sexual and physical abuse that consumed his childhood because he never received any type of treatment for these traumas. Lysak wrote, In the absence of treatment, the traumatized brain can spend many decades replaying specific terrifying experiences like an endless loop of tape, end quote. Lysak's affidavit states that by the age of nine, Gray was repeatedly raped by his older brother and whipped by his father. Attacks that were corroborated by other family members. The whippings were 
quote, such an inescapable part of the Cooley's life that like the sexual abuse, he retains vivid sensory memories of both the pain they produce and the objects that his father used to inflict the pain. The affidavit states using the nickname for Gray, quote, quote, the rapes were so pervasive, so frequent, and over such a long period of time that they can only be described as sexual slavery, end quote. When Gray was nine years old, his mother enrolled him in the U.S. Naval Cadet Program. While he was getting ready for a trip, Gray's older brother raped him in the basement so viciously that he bled in the uniform, according to the affidavit. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, and touches all trigger memories of violent sexual abuse, Lysak states. The sight of striped socks, which his brother would use to muffle his screams, or the sound of static from the television, which always remained on during the rapes, trigger memories, the psychologist said. Starting at the age of eight, he was also raped by the woman in his father's brothel, Lysak said. Gray, quote, could not recall with any degree of certainty how many times he was sexually abused by prostitutes and other women who were either years or decades older than him, Lysak wrote. These repeated abusive experiences occurred regularly throughout his childhood, underscoring that he was helpless to protect his body from the sexual depredations of adults, end quote. Okay, I don't want to take away from anybody's trauma and whether this happened or not it may have been real to him okay but I don't want to get too far into the psychology of things but I do want to remind everybody that these claims were unfounded and they were used during his trial and appeals and again were all unfounded And the other thing I want to say is, even if all of that did happen to him, that's horrible, but that most certainly doesn't give you any excuse to go and return the favor times 100 to other people. So we all know somebody who has had a traumatic childhood or upbringing or experience, and that in no way, shape, or form turned them into serial killers who can use that as their excuse to just get away with everything in life. Unfortunately, that's not the way this works. So whether it happened or not, honestly, in my opinion, is kind of irrelevant. It may shape who he was and explain it a little bit more, but I don't see it as an excuse. And he shouldn't get any lighter sentence because of it. That's just my opinion. No, most certainly. No, he should not get a lighter sentence because of this. Let's say that this is all true. And this is a horrible childhood if this is the case. And um, I definitely like feel for him in that sense. But that is, again, absolutely no excuse for him to go and turn around and do this to somebody else. Like, it's just not okay. Right. Obviously. And if we start I mean, letting people off of their crimes and not holding them accountable because they had a traumatic childhood, um, this world would be a very ugly place because people would be committing crimes left and right and then just claiming that they were assaulted in some way, shape, or form or had a traumatic experience and we're all supposed to just be like, okay, well, I feel sorry for you, so it's fine. It's not fine. It's not fucking fine. It's not fine what happened to him if that did happen and it's not fine that he continued doing it. 
It's not fine. None of this is fine. Yeah, I completely agree. On a higher note, uh, following their death, there were many memorials started in loving memory of the Harvey family. There is the Family Memorial Endowment that was created, quote, to provide music, visual art, and performing arts enrichment in the Richmond area, end quote. There is an annual event called Ruby's Run, organized to raise money in little Ruby Harvey's name for a scholarship fund at her preschool. In 2006, the William Fox Elementary School in Richmond, where Stella Harvey went to school, dedicated its new children's garden in her memory. There is a song called Two Daughters and a Beautiful Wife on the 2008 album of the American Alternative Country Group Drive-By Truckers dedicated to the Harveys. Even a bridge was dedicated by the city of Richmond as the Harvey Family Memorial Bridge. I think that's beautiful. It definitely is. I love that so much. There's a little bit of light in this very, 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 very dark story. It's beautiful to see communities come together during times of tragedy. I mean, obviously tragedy is horrible, but it's always nice to see how communities step up and provide support and love and encouragement and stuff like that for those involved and keeping their memory alive and things like that. So I love that. Oh, absolutely. And actually I have witnessed this myself in my own community um, on actually numerous occasions when I was growing up and every time it's just really, really amazing to see, you know, there's no lack of support. You're right. Like during these tragic times and you know, we can't bring your loved ones back, but we can try to make your new norm as easy as possible, you know, and do everything we can. I think that's really great. Okay, but I have a couple of discussion questions for you. So if only one of the two, I'm going to refer to them as boys because that's what they are, um, between Gray and Dandridge, if only one of them could be given the death penalty, did they choose the right one? That's my that's my number one question here. I mean, I think they should have both gotten it, but I can see why they only, I mean, I can, yeah, yes and no, because I think that they should have both gotten the death penalty, um, but, but I get why they chose Grey, but I just, I don't know. I mean, I guess if they had to pick one, I mean... I don't know. I kind of don't think that they picked the right one, but again, I, I, I'm kind of just dead set on that. They should have both been put to death, but that's just me. Right. But hear me out here. So Gray was married for six months. He didn't kill his wife until Dandridge moved in and every killing had both of them there. And Dandridge was the only one that said Ashley went bye-bye. And he also had been in jail for 10 years for armed robbery. Dandridge killed three people on his own and assisted in the killing of at least five other people. So I feel like between the two of them, who was more guilty, who had a higher body count, who had a more deadly influence, who was 
involved in a lot more crime in the community for a lot longer period of time, I believe the worst of two evils was Dandridge, yet he's the one that's still alive. And, you know, if execution is the worst form of push is the worst form of punishment in our country in that state at that time, then I think that Dandridge should have gotten it. However, I do believe that everything happens for a reason. So maybe Gray is involved in a lot more things that we're just not aware of. Or, or Dandridge is in hell. In that, like, he is really struggling through his prison time. And maybe killing him would have been too easy. So... Do I think that Dandridge should have been the one to be executed instead of Gray? Yes. However, if he's having a terrible life and struggling for whatever reason, that's what I would wish on him. And that's what I'm going to hold on to in knowing that he is still alive. I definitely see where you're coming from. I also want to point out that when they got arrested in Philadelphia... Who was the first one to talk? Right. Dandridge. Mm -hmm. Who got the better deal? Mm -hmm. Dandridge. Mm -hmm. So not only is he in prison as a child killer, Mm -hmm. but he's also in there as a snitch, more than likely. So do I think he's having a hell of a time? 100%. I hope so. And if the other inmates don't know, I hope they're listening. Listen, listen here. We got some news for you. No, seriously, though. But like, you got some dirt on your cellmates. He's just not. I just don't see how he would be having a good time. You know what I mean? Like an easy time, um, because he, he like just like if you look at his paperwork, you know, you you get a new cellie and you're like, all right, let me see your paperwork, right? And then you're like, oh, you kill kids and you snitched. Like what? Like, huh? So either he's in uh, PC or he's just, (laughs) you know, I don't know. Whatever they are doing, you know, I don't know. But I feel like the reason that he, he got that deal was because he was the first one to talk, which usually happens like that. But yeah, I just hope he's in a living hell that's all that i hope for him and it's funny because i don't normally wish any ill will on anybody but this man a hundred percent i hope that he is living in like the equivalent of hell and when he dies that's where he's going there's a special place in hell for him yeah he's just a straight menace and not in a good way yeah Yeah, I think we have some really good thought processes going on that question, but it kind of leads into my next question too. Is it possible to guess who was the ringleader between the uncle and nephew? Like who was the one really kind of pulling the strings? I mean, I don't know if this is a no brainer to everyone, but to me, it's like pretty um, obvious that it's Dandridge Mm -hmm. because, um, You know, he did prison time. And I think that he has that criminality mindset more than Gray because Gray was married. You know what I mean? Like he was, Mm -hmm. 
doing the things that you are supposed to do or that your, you know, society tells you to do, like get married, have kids. He got married. He was married. Right. <laughs> and and then, they may not have had the best relationship, but that's not a crime. Right. Exactly. He didn't go kill anybody or commit armed robbery or anything like that. Like you spent 10 years in prison as a young adult and you get out and you have had zero adult interactions or anything outside of prison, like that's a, that's going to take your mindset. You know, you're going to start thinking like that. And unless you are like coached significantly to not, it's easy to fall into that mindset. Like, yeah, I, I agree. I think that he had exposure to it. And so he brought that with him. He's like, Hey, unk, let's go. Let's go do this because this isn't this. It makes so much sense. And then, you know, Gray's like a little follower, a little copycat. So, like, he's like, okay, cool. Like, cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I just think that it's a no-brainer to me. Like, who was the yeah, leader here? Absolutely. But I just want to reiterate that they are equally responsible for the crimes that they individually committed. But I do agree with you in that Dandridge was kind of the one hyping this up, right? Like pulling the strings, maybe even coming up with the plans and, and getting them involved in, in this crime spree. Which is why I think he also like talked first. Because if Gray right. came out and was like, uh, he planned all this, I was just along for the ride. You know what I mean? Like, that could have really, like, buried him. But he was the one that... Well, and he first. knew he'd been there before. Right. He's been in the hot seat. Right. So he Across knows, the table like, from the investigators, he knows what he gets out of that. Exactly. Exactly. Is that stupid? Which is why I think that he talked first before, like, within, what did it say, an hour? Like, he talked first because he knows. And Gray as far as we know, had never been in prison before. So it's like, or any sort of trouble for, well, right? Yeah, we don't have an extensive background on them. But you're right. As far as we know, he didn't have that background. Okay, my last question actually has to do with Ashley. So remember, this is one of their girlfriends who set up her mother and stepfather and ended up being one of Gray and Dandridge's victims. So my question is, how can Ashley justify her actions and participate in the robbery and death of her mother and stepfather? So basically what I'm trying to get at is that like, <laughs> what if she wasn't murdered? Would she have been able to live with herself continuing to play a role on this crime spree knowing that she has started to victimize her own family? Whether they lived or not, like how how can you possibly set your family up like that? I mean, I know that she may not have been happy with her home life, but from what it sounds like, this was her kind of like rebelling and... And I, I understand that, right? Like I've been a teen girl before, <laughs> but what I don't understand is I never got to the extreme where I wanted to put my parents in that type of a situation. And 
from the sounds of it, from like everybody around them, they were good church going people. And her stepfather had some rules that he laid down in his home, which he has every right to do. And she didn't like them. Okay, well, so you're just going to be a stuck up snob and help these two random boys steal from them and then ultimately cause their death like you know what they're capable of like how can you do that and live with yourself it sounds to me like she wasn't really thinking about the long run it sounded to me like she was more just trying to like almost like be cool to fit in with these people and you know oh let's hype up Bonnie and Clyde type of situation. And, you know, you're my ride or die sort of thing. You know, and you just don't know the type of manipulation that was happening there, if there was any. And so if there was, you know, then that's easy to explain because she could have been manipulated. If not, you know, they could have just want, she could have just wanted to impress them or, you know, well, on the topic of ride or die, I hate that because that either means ride with them because they're right or die right. because they're still right. And that's fucked up because what happens is she still chose to ride and she still died. So and guess what? In neither situation were they right. So the whole ride or die mentality is fucked up. Right. She ride and died. Right. I don't, this is, <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't oh wish that she died. Um, I, I truly don't. I think that's something that would have been like a life lesson that she could have learned, you know, but <laughs> they're definitely, I mean, again, consequence to your actions. Right. So this is obviously really extreme when we're talking about her just rebelling, but I think right. that you're right, that it was just probably her trying to fit in or whatever, but it makes me fucking sick that somebody is willing to do that and put their family in harm's way. And you know what else is funny is that she's going to set them up to steal her parents' money, which is what is supporting her. So right. you're shooting yourself in the foot. Like, I don't understand this whole thought process. It's really, really childish, the long-term consequences of this. And you know what? I totally agree with that. And that does make me wonder if there were drugs being used and involved. Because the attorney was claiming that Gray was using PCP during the murderous acts. And so I wonder if maybe there was some type of drug being used, whether it's PCP or whatever, um, that's causing her to have these irrational thought processes and altering her decision making. You know what I mean? I don't want to like, again, yeah. that's not an excuse. She should be held accountable for her actions. But I'm wondering, because I don't think any sane person that didn't have some sort of like manipulation or drug or you know some alternative influence make these decisions like 
if she had never met Gray and Dandridge, I believe that her and her family would still be alive. Like she wouldn't have sought someone out to come out and do that. You know what I mean? She just, I believe, got mixed up in the wrong crowd and it obviously resulted in their deaths. But without them, I don't think that she would have gone as far as she did. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it sounds like that's just like a really immature decision. Um, Yeah, and I think that's really the best word to use when answering this question is just the immaturity factor of it. It's horrible. So those were all the discussion questions that I had for you today on this case. I know we talked a lot as we went through it, so that's why I only had three of them. But I am truly interested to hear what our addicts have to say about these. So addicts, this is for you. Jump over to our social media, like, follow, share, rate, review, donate, all the good stuff. But when you hit Facebook um, and search for Crime Addicts Pod, scroll down past our Amazon link and you will see the discussion questions for episode number 35. There are three of them. They will be posted there. I will repeat them now. So it's number one, if only one of the two could be given the death penalty, did they choose the right one? Number two, is it possible to guess who was the ringleader between the uncle and nephew? And three, how can Ashley justify her actions and participate in the robbery and death of her mother and stepfather? We will post pictures on our social medias as well so that you will have faces to the names that we spoke about today, which truly does make a difference when you know what these people look like. So with that, we will wrap up this week's episode on these two idiots who look like they didn't know the difference between their left and right and were sucking on their mom's tit for far too long. So come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and stay caffeinated.